It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of malpractice, potential poisonings, and the deaths of children. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Everyone likes a winning streak, especially when it comes to gambling. Feeling like nothing can stop you, you can't lose, it's intoxicating. But some, like Victorian physician William Palmer, are fooled into thinking it can last forever. When a crash inevitably comes, they are unprepared. They become desperate to get out of the hole and, in the process, only dig themselves deeper. But unlike most gamblers, Dr. William Palmer was willing to kill for the chance to win again. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take their Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and looking forward to assisting Alastair by providing medical insight into this very interesting story of Dr. William Palmer. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on William Palmer, one of the most famous poisoners in the history of the United Kingdom. His weapon of choice? Strychnine. While he was only convicted of murdering one person, some estimates suggest that he may have killed as many as 14 more. This week, we'll track William's early life, including his medical background and history of gambling. Next week, we'll uncover William's secret deals, his mounting debts, and his horrifying get-rich-quick schemes. William used his understanding of medicine to poison some of the people closest to him before his high-flying life came crashing down. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. By the end of 1854, 30-year-old Dr. William Palmer's life had hit the skids. Poor investment left him hounded by debt collectors. 
If he couldn't come up with the necessary cash, he'd likely land in a debtor's prison. His medical practice did okay, but tracking down payments from patients was often difficult. As his desperation grew, it became clear to his patients in Rugeley, England, that he was willing to do anything to get out of debt. So, when members of Dr. Palmer's family turned up dead and he attempted to collect huge sums in the form of life insurance policies, people took notice. They began to wonder if William used his medical knowledge to poison his own family. Though, for Dr. William Palmer, being noticed wasn't anything new. Even at a young age, William stood out. Out of Sarah and Joseph Palmer's seven children, 10-year-old William was the most spirited. In 1834, locals often saw the boy playing on the banks of the canal behind the family's lavish home before running inside drenched. William experienced a pampered childhood in the small town of Rugeley, 130 miles northwest of London. His father worked as a carpenter who used his expertise to build the family's large house. However, Joseph Palmer made most of his fortune buying and selling large quantities of expensive wood. Neither Joseph nor Sarah Palmer hid the family's wealth from their children. Instead, they taught them to appreciate it. But William took it further. He seemed to relish in the fact he was from a higher class. Nowhere was this more apparent than at school. William never focused mostly because he knew he didn't have to. He had the family fortune waiting for him. Naturally, his classmates weren't too fond of William. They called him daring and reckless on the playground because he didn't seem to care about anything. However, according to some accounts, the label that most stuck was bully. William wasn't afraid to wave his family's wealth around. He had apparently learned that money equaled power, and he wielded this wisdom with malice by teasing less fortunate students. However, William's carefree childhood came to an end when tragedy struck the family in 1837. When William was 12, his father passed away suddenly. Even with the breadwinner deceased, the family was still well taken care of. Joseph Palmer had squirreled funds away for years. By the time he passed, the family had amassed a fortune valued at £75,000, worth more than $11 million today. But William's mother, Sarah, didn't want her children relying on their inheritance. She made it clear they would have careers. So when William was 17, he went to work for a local chemist. As an apprentice, William did anything asked of him. He assisted customers, categorized materials, and gathered ingredients for compounds, including the dangerous poison strychnine, commonly used as a pesticide. William hated the work almost immediately and constantly felt undervalued. It wasn't long before he decided to remedy that. Soon after starting, William began stealing small amounts of money from the chemist when they weren't looking. William may not have needed the funds, but it seems he felt entitled to them. 
The modest sums added up, and after three months, the chemist caught on. They fired William on the spot. For 17-year-old William, the loss of employment didn't matter. He could easily find another job, and if things got bad, he could lean on the family fortune. By the time he was 18, William had started working at the Stafford Infirmary. There, he had access to numerous medical texts. From these books, William had the opportunity to learn about the effects of the compounds he had helped the chemist sell. He may have even learned of the damaging effects of strychnine poisoning, which include muscle spasms, difficulty breathing, and eventually, death. But his time at the infirmary was more than just reading. He was an assistant and got hands-on medical experience. William got to watch as the medical staff operated and cared for patients. However, like most rural hospitals at the time, the conditions were horrid. Patients died from minor ailments like colds or minor cuts and scrapes. Locals knew being admitted into the facility was potentially akin to a death sentence. There weren't nearly enough staff to properly care for all the patients, and without sufficient resources, patients weren't kept clean. Infections were rampant. Death was everywhere. Spoiled William didn't last long and quit before he'd completed a full year. But his experiences with the chemist at the infirmary left their mark. A few weeks after leaving the infirmary, William set off for London. He had his eyes set on becoming a physician. In London, William studied at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, one of the country's oldest. Studying medicine in 1843 was obviously much different than it is today. To put it simply, most of what we now know to be true of medicine and healthcare was largely misunderstood and unrecognized in 1843. For example, the concept of germs and their relation to disease spreading was thought by many doctors to be New Age nonsense. Lots of physicians of the time even still believed in the ancient notion that the four bodily humors were responsible for mood and health. Nevertheless, the rudimentary curriculum resulting from this dated understanding was intensive for aspiring doctors. Studying medicine has been difficult throughout history, and to succeed, a person always had to be driven. And while William attended all of his lectures, it appears his heart wasn't in his studies. The rambunctious nature that drew the ire of so many classmates in Rugeley blossomed in London. William spent many late nights at local pubs, drinking until he stumbled home sick. On his days off, he spent countless hours at the nearby horse track, hoping to make a quick buck. William may have suffered from a gambling addiction. On a biological level, Behavioral addictions result from an imbalanced brain chemistry. Specifically, they're caused by two neurotransmitters, or chemicals that create behavioral impulses. Gambling addicts tend to have imbalanced dopamine systems and naturally produce insufficient usable dopamine. Because of this, they're drawn to behaviors that create dopamine production, compensating for their natural imbalance. In essence, the thrill, excitement, and risk from gambling delivers dopamine bumps to their brains, making them feel good and more chemically balanced. 
Because of this, addictions stemming from neurochemical imbalances are very common and difficult to break. Besides an obvious initial enjoyment of gambling, a burgeoning gambling addict may demonstrate other behaviors that relate to their underlying dopamine imbalance. For example, these people may be impulsive in their decision-making, may seek out high-risk activities despite seemingly better judgment, and often have problems managing outbursts of anger. A gambling addict has very little control once their addiction is in full swing, as their brain essentially feels too good to worry about the potentially terrible consequences. Most days, William left the track with less money than he arrived with, but he didn't mind. He had his inheritance and a lucrative career as a physician to look forward to. Once he opened his practice, he'd grow up. But starting a medical practice was easier said than done. While William dutifully carried on his education at St. Bartholomew, he was woefully unprepared to take his medical entrance exams. It seems that William's interest in experiencing everything London offered came at the expense of his medical knowledge. So William's mother paid a local doctor, Dr. Stiegel, 100 pounds, worth more than $14,000 today, to tutor William. Dr. Stiegel spent weeks with William, going over the basics and making sure he knew all of the pitfalls of the test. To Dr. Stiegel and William's credit, the 22-year-old passed and was officially licensed as a physician in August of 1846. Shortly after, Dr. William Palmer moved back to Rugeley, where he quickly opened up a practice. Owning a medical practice can come with many rewards, but there are also plenty of challenges. It requires a lot of time and effort to build a clientele, and it takes even longer to establish the kind of lasting relationships and historical trust that patients come to expect from their doctors. Starting your own practice also equates to being out in the wild for the first time. From my own experience, the most difficult part of starting my practice, besides building my clientele, was the enormous sense of responsibility to my patients' lives. Opening a medical practice also immediately thrusts new doctors into the world of business, something they didn't go to school for. This can be particularly challenging from a financial perspective, as opening a business is a costly and risky investment. When looking at the associated expenses, supplies, equipment, staff, and office space, it's not unusual for private practitioners to start their careers with considerable debt and financial insecurity. All of these risks and considerations opened William up to a ton of potential problems, even with the cushion of his inheritance. Despite the risks, William's practice thrived in its first year. To everyone in town, it seemed William had rounded a corner and finally grown up. William acted professional, kind, and courteous to all. Yet this professional attitude was a facade. William still had the same wild spirit. On days he could sneak away, he went to watch more horse racing. He feigned interest in the sporting aspect of racing to disguise his true interest in gambling. And as he spent more time at the pubs and the track, the facade slowly began to crumble. 
coming up, William's business struggles and his family takes a devastating blow. Hello, it's Alastair, and I'm excited to tell you about a phenomenal podcast show I know you'll love that dives deep into some of history's most notorious leaders. It's called Dictators, and every Tuesday, it examines the reign of a real-life tyrant, exploring the unique conditions that allowed them to seize control. Dictators have a never-ending thirst for power. Some seize this power through force, others through deceit, and all of them won't hesitate to eliminate anybody who stands in their way. We've covered North Korean dictators like Kim Il-sung, militant African dictators like Jean Bedel Bokassa, female dictators like Mary I of England, and many more. There are over 40 episodes available to binge right now that I know you'll find fascinating. Discover the governments that fell, the lives that were destroyed, and evil at its highest level. Follow Dictators free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. 23-year-old Dr. William Palmer appeared to thrive at the end of 1847. His business grew and with it, his cash flow. But he spent money recklessly to bolster his image. Some reports claimed that William paid £25 a week for a luxurious home near his practice. And while this may sound like a small amount, today it equates to more than $3,000 a week on rent. However, this flashy lifestyle made him an attractive suitor for many local women. Within a few months, William caught the eye of 20-year-old Anne Thornton. Anne was the illegitimate daughter of a former British colonel. The colonel had died several years before, leaving both Anne and her mother with what William believed were substantial inheritances. This instantly drew William to Anne. On October 7, 1847, the pair were married in a large ceremony. The couple seemed happy as Anne moved into William's home both were excited to start the next chapter of their lives. At the beginning of 1849, Anne's mother, Mrs. Thornton, came to stay at the Palmer residence after the holidays. Unfortunately, her stay didn't go as planned. Anne's mother fell seriously ill. Thankfully, her doctor husband, William, was there to look after Mrs. Thornton. He disappeared into her room for hours each day to run comprehensive checkups. But each time he emerged, Anne saw the look of disappointment on his face. William told her things weren't looking good. On January 18, 1849, only a few weeks after coming to stay with the young couple, Mrs. Thornton died. That afternoon, another doctor came to the house and collected the body to determine Mrs. Thornton's cause of death. Allegedly, after the examination, they concluded Mrs. Thornton died of apoplexy. Apoplexy relates to a sudden loss of consciousness or acute death, and today it most commonly resembles a cerebral hemorrhage or stroke. The causes of a brain hemorrhage or stroke are vast and include things like head trauma, high blood pressure, alcoholism, smoking, genetics, and potentially blood-thinning medications. 
There are also poisons that can induce a kind of internal bleeding we see in brain hemorrhages and strokes. For example, unlike shorter-acting blood thinners, rat poison is a long-acting anticoagulant, meaning it prevents blood from clotting for a long period of time. It's possible that William could have used something like rat poison to kill Mrs. Thornton, and her age would have made her more vulnerable to death from this. This is, however, speculative, and we shouldn't jump to discount the judgment of the doctor's diagnosis. Still, the timing of Mrs. Thornton's death was certainly suspicious. Few individuals questioned William or believed that he had a hand in his mother-in-law's death. But most of the residents of Rugeley didn't know about William Palmer's emerging financial troubles. William's expenses were piling up, and his inheritance wasn't going to last forever with his extravagant lifestyle. On top of that, William still had a terrible habit of gambling on horse racing. This drained even more of his funds. So when William finally learned his wife wouldn't receive the property that her deceased biological father had left to her mother, he was disappointed. As it was, William held everything together by a thread. Any new expense might throw his life into chaos. And one came just a few months later, when Anne Palmer got pregnant. William was immediately filled with a rush of emotion. Of course, he was excited to be a father, but the costs of a child couldn't be ignored. William could only lean on his medical practice so much. The reality was they lived in a village that lacked the money seen in larger cities. But instead of making a plan to increase his business, William was drawn to the sound of thundering hooves and the allure of quick cash. He studied the horses, the jockeys and the trainers, anything that could give him an edge when placing bets. This type of behavior is typical of gambling addicts and is really pretty common in most dopamine-driven addictions. This is because the routine or ritual surrounding an addiction is often more powerful and enticing than the habit itself. For example, studies show that smokers get more dopamine boosts from buying, unwrapping, and lighting cigarettes than they do from actually smoking them. By studying and immersing himself in all the detail leading up to the races, William is constantly giving himself dopamine hits, stemming from the anticipation of the reward and rituals associated with his gambling problem. More time spent investigating the horse race and more time spent at the track demonstrates an increasing severity of William's betting addiction. Some days at the track were better than others. William would come out on top, but most often, regardless of strategy, he'd leave with far less money in his pockets. Months ticked by as William tried to quiet his fears. Then, at the beginning of 1850, Anne gave birth to their first child, William Jr. The family seemed to be full of happiness. William wholeheartedly loved his child, and for a time, he attempted to mitigate his gambling habit he focused on his medical practice. However, that didn't last long. Only a few months after their first baby was born, Anne announced that she was pregnant again. This sent William into a spiral. 
he went back to the horse races in earnest, looking to get lucky. With another baby on the way and his inheritance stretched, William needed cash. In April of 1850, William reached out to an acquaintance he met at the track, 49-year-old Leonard Bladen. Bladen agreed to give William a sizable loan of £600, worth about $105,000 today. A few weeks later, the pair returned to the track. Bladen had a great day. He won a large sum on a single race. William? Not so great. At the track, Bladen wrote to his wife, saying he looked to collect on William's debt. Still, they both headed back to Rugeley to celebrate. In Rugeley, William and Bladen drank to Bladen's success. Shortly after, Bladen complained of abdominal pain. He doubled over in agony. William reached for his friend and helped him back on his feet. William took Bladen back to his home to care for him. But there, things didn't improve. Allegedly, no one else was in the room as William attempted to treat Bladen, but sounds of excruciating pain reverberated through the house. It's unclear what, if any, measures William took to treat Bladen. Later that evening, Leonard Bladen passed away. His cause of death was listed as an abscess in his pelvis that led to an infection. This was attributed to an event a few months earlier when a cart ran into Bladen. While this might seem suspicious, an autopsy wasn't recorded and authorities took William at his word. However, after Bladen's widow collected his body, a rumor spread that she noticed there was no cash on him and his betting ledger was missing. She never laid eyes on her husband's final winnings or the money he lent William Palmer. William never looked back or felt remorse. He might have finally found the money he needed for the baby on the way. Around November of 1850, Anne gave birth to the couple's second child, Elizabeth. However, that brought new fear. Elizabeth appeared frail and her cries were weak. Anne worried and doted on her daughter. She was thankful for the family's housekeeper, Mrs. Bradshaw, who helped look after Elizabeth. But even with Mrs. Bradshaw's constant attention, Elizabeth's condition declined. The information the family could glean out of Elizabeth's ailment in 1851 was sparse. At the time, medicine and the understanding of healthcare was very rudimentary. And, as we noted earlier, the connection between germs and disease was not yet fully embraced. Medical treatment of children at the time was also crude because pediatrics was still an evolving area of medicine. Today, a doctor would conduct a thorough examination and possibly order lab work before deciding on a treatment direction for an infant like Elizabeth. In the 1850s, however, children were treated symptomatically, a Band-Aid approach. If a child seemed weak, they would be given stimulants, and if they were experiencing agitating pain, they'd be given some sort of sedative or pain-numbing agent. 
Because they hadn't the proper diagnostic techniques or the root understanding of most illnesses, doctors were really improvising in many of their attempts to treat children and adults. William likely tried to treat Elizabeth, though it's unclear how. Still, nothing helped. The baby's condition deteriorated each day. Eventually, baby Elizabeth passed away in early January 1851. Anne was crushed, and Mrs. Bradshaw was just as distraught. William outwardly showed his grief, but there was another emotion he might have felt as well. Observers would later claim that he was quietly relieved he didn't have the financial burden of a second child. Unfortunately, Elizabeth's death began a pattern. Over the next three years, Anne gave birth to three more children who died in infancy. First Henry, who died in January 1852, after about a month of life. Next came Frank, who died in December 1852, only a few hours after being born. Last, there was John, who died in January 1854, three days after being born. For housekeeper Mrs. Bradshaw, this was seemingly the last straw. These deaths seemed more than just a tragedy, they appeared intentional. Immediately after John died, Mrs. Bradshaw allegedly told the patrons at a local pub that earlier in the day, William had taken responsibility for his baby's care. Moments after William closed his bedroom door, Mrs. Bradshaw heard John cry upstairs. A minute later, William emerged from the room holding his dead son in his arms. Mrs. Bradshaw later said she believed William poisoned baby John. But with no proof, she never went to the authorities. All she could do was quit her job. Even if Mrs. Bradshaw had taken her concerns to the police, infant mortality was incredibly high in Victorian England. Authorities wouldn't necessarily bat an eye at the four children that died in William and Anne's care. And while their deaths are suspicious, they may not be murders. The Palmer children may have died from a complication from their blood type. It's possible that Anne may have had Rh-negative blood. This wasn't a known problem in 1854 because the Rh protein wasn't discovered until 1939. Rh, also known as rhesus factor, is a genetically inherited protein that coats our red blood cells, or the cells that carry oxygen to the body's tissues. People who have this protein are Rh positive, while those who don't are Rh negative. It's most common to have an Rh positive blood type, but the absence of this protein isn't usually a health concern. However, being Rh negative can be detrimental to pregnancies if the baby carried is Rh positive. This is because the Rh protein in the baby's blood is foreign to the mother's system. So antibodies are created to attack this unknown protein. This then damages the baby's red blood cells, which can lead to anemia in the infant, a condition where oxygen-carrying red blood cells are destroyed faster than they're created. If severe, this can cause death without intervention. There's a nuance here, though. 
Rh-negative mothers carrying Rh-positive babies generally don't need to worry about their infants surviving if it's their first pregnancy. This is because the baby will be safely delivered before the mother has time to develop enough Rh antibodies to hurt the child. All subsequent pregnancies are dangerous, though, because the first birth created large and lasting antibody response. Rh complications were certainly a possibility here, but it's ultimately unclear how the Palmer children died given the passage of time. Unfortunately, these tragedies weren't the last for the Palmers. In less than two years, two more members of William's immediate family were dead. Coming up, William falls further into debt and the people closest to him continue to die. Now, back to the story. By September of 1854, 30-year-old Dr. William Palmer found himself in dire straits. In the past four years, he'd lost four infant children. At the same time, he owed around 25,000 pounds, worth around $3.5 million today to multiple creditors. And the terms of some of his deals were less than ideal. One creditor made William pay 60% interest on the amount he borrowed. This made it nearly impossible for William to get out of the hole. But that didn't stop him from trying. By this point, William had all but given up on his medical practice. The operations costs were too high, and he decided to spend his days at the racetrack. To him, gambling seemed to have better odds than trudging along with his business. But even that wasn't enough. Either out of an abundance of caution or for nefarious purposes, William took a life insurance policy out on his 27-year-old wife, Anne. The policy was worth a total of £13,000, totaling around $1.8 million today. This wasn't something William did on a whim. For the policy, he paid one premium of £750, which equates to about $105,000 today. A truly large sum of money for someone with so much debt, and an amount he surely had to scrounge together. By some accounts, William truly loved Anne. However, by 1854, Anne needed a break. Not from William, per se, but everything. She had witnessed the deaths of four of her children and wondered if she was somehow responsible. On top of that, she watched her husband spiral further into debt every year. He thought he could hide the bills from her, but Anne was observant. It wasn't hard to notice the papers piling up or to tell when William came back from the track. The dirt on his shoes, the downtrodden looks, and the smell of horses he carried with him. They were all telltale signs of his financial desperation. But with these mounting pressures, Anne decided to attend a concert with William's sister, Sarah. She wanted an evening to take her mind off of everything. The pair traveled by carriage to Liverpool, about 90 miles northwest. The air was cool as they made their way through the fields and over the low hills. When the two arrived in Liverpool that evening, 
St. George Hall was packed. Anne enjoyed the music. It was just what she needed. The next day, the pair returned to Rugeley, and an exhausted Anne went straight to bed. The morning after that, Anne woke up feeling unusually tired. Soon, she experienced a low-grade fever and decided to spend the day in bed. William came to check up on Anne. He cooked her food and tended to her. However, Anne's condition immediately deteriorated. She was quick to vomit up anything William made her, and she fell gravely ill. William called on a friend of his, another doctor, to assess Anne. 80-year-old Dr. Bamford came right away. Dr. Bamford asked William what he'd observed. William described Anne's symptoms as vomiting, fever, and cramps. He believed Anne suffered from cholera. Already influenced by William's assessment, Dr. Bamford observed Anne. Her heartbeat was irregular and she was severely dehydrated. He gave William some pills of calomel, a powdered form of mercurous chloride, before leaving. Dr. Bamford had good intentions, but his remedy might have ultimately caused more harm than good. Widely considered dangerous today, mercury was seen as a cure-all in the mid-1800s. Doctors would administer calomel to cholera patients primarily because it was believed that the mercury content of the drug would induce vomiting and diarrhea. In other words, doctors at that time likely thought giving mercury to someone with cholera would increase vomiting and diarrhea, helping the patient purge the sickness faster. By the mid-1800s, calomel was being prescribed in pretty large doses, so it wouldn't have taken lots of this drug to possibly harm Anne's vital organs. Interestingly, the American Medical Association was founded in 1847, largely to defend the use of mercury treatments like calomel. This goes to show how highly regarded this medicine was at the time. Thankfully, doctors today recognize and understand the dangers of mercury and would never advise someone to ingest this toxic metal. When Dr. Bamford returned a few days later, Anne had only taken one of the pills and seemed in worse condition. She didn't speak and her movements were limited. Dr. Bamford left shortly after, unable to do anything more. Visitors over the next few days said they saw William give Anne water, which appeared to be mixed with something, but they couldn't tell what it was. When anyone came to check on Anne, William never left her side. Each visitor agreed, though, Anne's health seemed increasingly worse. On September 29, 1854, Anne's breath was labored and her skin felt cool to the touch. William looked over her as she continued to slip away. By the end of the day, she was dead. Anne Palmer was only 27 years old. While Anne died in the prime of her life, there may be a few clues to explain what happened. Cholera could have been responsible for Anne's death as she had some classic symptoms. For instance, she was dehydrated, unable to hold down food without vomiting, and had cramping that resulted from these stomach spasms. 
She also had extreme lethargy, cold, clammy skin, and an irregular heartbeat, which can all be viewed as common cholera symptoms caused by the electrolyte deficiency that comes with this illness. Her fever could be another indicator, but this is a less common symptom. There's even an outside chance that William could have been poisoning Anne with strychnine, the active ingredient in rat poison, as he was seen giving her a mysteriously cloudy glass of water, which may have looked that way if powdered strychnine had been mixed in. Her cramping may have also been more muscular in origin than from intestinal spasms, since muscle rigidity is a common symptom of strychnine poisoning. On top of this, we know that William had a financial motivation in having Anne dead. In reality, any number of things could have befallen Anne. It could have been something natural like cholera, or there might have been some human intervention involved here. William certainly had lots to gain from Anne's untimely demise. Only a few days later, Dr. Bamford signed a death certificate that listed cholera as the cause of Anne's death. Shortly after receiving the document, William collected Anne's 13,000 pounds life insurance policy. He paid off two of his creditors. This wiped out about half of his accumulated debt, leaving him owing another 13,000 pounds or so. Though some in town started casting sideways glances, no one ever openly accused William of any foul play. But a few months later, even William's love for Anne was thrown into question when his new housekeeper, Eliza Tharm, announced she was pregnant with his child. William tried to keep this a secret, but people in Rugeley talked. This announcement only added to the stress on William. He still had over £10,000 worth of debt remaining and struggled to come up with regular payments to cover the interest. His inheritance was completely gone, and his medical practice couldn't support him. So he started to sign checks in his mother's name to pay back his debts. However, it didn't take the creditors long to call out William on the fraud. They threatened to inform his mother of the deceit and sue her in retaliation. William couldn't bear the thought of this happening. His mother still had some money left over from his father's nest egg, and he likely didn't want to lose out on that inheritance when she died. So, he stopped writing the fraudulent checks and began to scheme. By 1855, William was determined to get back out of debt and get his life back on track. He didn't care who stood in his way or what nefarious deeds needed doing. He was going to succeed at all costs. His wife's insurance policy had worked out nicely, and William wondered if the trick might be performed again. He just needed to lure in the right subject. And when his older brother Walter stumbled back into his life, William knew he'd struck gold. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. I look forward to next week. 
You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trikvedotta, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Don't forget to check out Dictators. Every Tuesday, we go deep into the minds of some of history's most despised despots. You'll get insight into their rise to power and the impact of their downfall. Search for Dictators in the Spotify app and listen free today.